Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that DaVinci Academy has to offer at www.dbiacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I am joined by Dr. Colin Ruff uh, here today. He is a radiologist and then also a uh, author as well. Um, Dr. Ruff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Maxwell. Glad to be here. Great, great. Uh, so a little background, uh, Dr. Ruff is a, an attending radiologist in private practice uh, in, at Fairfa- Fairfax Radiology Centers in Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, he's also an associate professor of medical education at uh, University of Virginia School of Medicine. Uh, and then he began his uh, education at Duke University, where he got his bachelor's and then his MD at University of North Carolina School of Medicine. So I guess he's a Blue Devil and a Tar Heel. <laughs> uh, and then he completed his internship in internal medicine at New Hanover Regional Medical Center in North Carolina, and then went out to University of Colorado for his radiology residency, where he was also a chief resident, and then completed his training with a fellowship in abdominal imaging at Georgetown University at, in Washington, D.C. And then he is also the author of a new book titled Looking Within, Understanding Ourselves Through Human Imaging. So here's his book right here. And we'll get more into that. And it's uh, just a brief statement on that. It provides uh, nonfiction narratives about new discoveries in patients through medical imaging and how those provide a unique window into their lives. Uh, so Colin, again, happy to have you on here. Um, maybe we could start out with you just telling us a little bit about your current clinical position, kind of uh, you know, what types of imaging you, you specialize in. You mentioned you do some procedures um, and kind of how you, you break up your clinical time. Sure. Well, I am lucky enough to have been with the same practice since I got out of fellowship, which is not always the case, but I have been with my company, Fairfax Radiology Centers, for over 22 years now. And because I did an abdominal imaging fellowship, I do a lot of standard CT, ultrasound, MRI, and that includes a lot of cross-sectional interventional procedures. So a lot of biopsies and drainages. The, the type of work has evolved over the years, uh, the practice has grown substantially and it has gotten a lot more subspecialized with the size and the depth and the breadth of, of knowledge and expertise that we have. So uh, we still read plain x-rays and all of that, but um, I feel very fortunate to be in the group that I'm in. Very cool, very cool. Um, and then I guess, what are um, kind of the bread and butter procedures you do? You mentioned, you said you do some mainly like, uh, is it abdominal biopsies? And then uh, you said percutaneous drainage placement as well, it sounds like. Absolutely. So we do a lot of biopsies all over the body, really. And then, of course, uh, drainage procedures, chest tubes, abscesses, gallbladders, whatever needs. I happen to do a lot of prostate work as well. So we read the prostate MR, and then I do the fusion biopsies using the, the MRI images uh, with ultrasound uh, fusion in order to biopsy suspicious lesions. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Um, and then outside of your, your clinical work, it sounds like you've, you've done teaching now for uh, a number of years now with uh, medical students, it seems. That's right. So 
Our hospital, Nova Fairfax, which is uh, one of the largest hospitals in the state and, and in the DC metro area, became a satellite campus initially for Virginia Commonwealth University out of Richmond. And that was way back in 2005, as I recall. And so I was one of the preceptors for the medical students who were doing elective rotations at our hospital. And just this past year, we transitioned from VCU to University of Virginia out of Charlottesville. So it's the same work, essentially, but in a, a different affiliation. Gotcha. Now, is that, do you do uh, more kind of lecturing the, like the first and second year medical students, or is it uh, them rotating through clinically as third and fourth years, or maybe a mix of both of those types of teaching? The, no, it's third and fourth years. So okay. I believe all of the first and second years are still in their core classrooms in Charlottesville. And then a proportion of the class comes up to do their clinical years at our hospital here in Fairfax. So we have third years rotating through who are getting just a taste early on if they're interested in possibly pursuing radiology. And then we have fourth years who are doing a full month elective. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then I guess, um, you know, given that, are you also teaching residents or is it mainly your, your teaching focusing on, on medical students right now? We don't have radiology residents in our okay. hospital. So uh, there are a lot of residents in fields like surgery, medicine, family practice, ER, OB, pediatrics. So a lot of these fields that we're teaching indirectly through conferences and daily case review, but it is primarily to the medical students. Uh, for radiology, which I look at as a blessing because I know that I've probably got a little more knowledge base than medical students. By the time some of these smart residents get there, I'm not sure that uh, I've got a whole lot more to add. So uh, I say that I hope in jest, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's students who are coming through our department. Very cool. Very cool. I'm curious, you know, it's, you've, it sounds like you've been involved in medical student education for a long time. I think radiology is one of those specialties that maybe med students don't get adequate enough exposure to. I guess, what have you found as kind of effective ways to get them, I guess, more involved during the rotation or, or more interested in the field or, or more apt to, or more likely to consider it? You know, everything you said is true. A lot of what students get exposed to with radiology is not from radiologists. And they, they pick up certain patterns of interpretation or ordering uh, from from non-radiologist clinical doctors, many of whom are quite knowledgeable and familiar with what to order and when, but I'd prefer that they get it directly from the source. So I do give lectures. Uh, as soon as they come in, we start off with a chest X-ray lecture, and then I've got other lectures that I try to interject whenever the school can get the students together and give me block time. Mm -hmm. And then of course, when the students rotate through the service, I believe one of the most important things that a student needs to get out of a month's radiology elective is a better understanding of what each modality can do and when is the best time to order a CT or an ultrasound or an MRI on which type of patient, on what age, of what condition. So a lot of it is, is patient uh, driven depending on the patient's condition. One of the goals I have for the students is that they get a better understanding of what to order. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I think that's, and that's important. Um, even if they don't go into radiology, that's, you know, I'm, I'm slowly learning the uh, struggle of, of reading images where you're not exactly so sure <laughs> were indicated or not. 
Um, that does not go away, trust yeah. me. But uh, <laughs> we, we, we try, and we try even with people who have been out in practice for a long time who may have certain ordering habits that might need a little tweaking. And I learn on the job every day too. So when we work together, I think it's in everyone's best interest. Sure, sure, of course, of course. Um, and then I guess uh, as far as you, the, the diagnostic imaging side of things, you did your fellowship in abdominal. Do you focus mainly on the abdomen? Or I know a lot of radiology and private practice also kind of read all over, can read all over the body. And then sometimes they do focus in one area. Where, where do you kind of fall on that spectrum? My area, as long as, as, as well as everyone else in my section tends to be chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Okay. So we have enough specialized musculoskeletal docs who are doing the joints and the neuro docs who are doing the brains and spines. So it does tend to be chest, abdomen, and pelvis work. We're going to take a quick break to let you know the DaVinci Hour podcast is brought to you by DaVinci Academy, which provides online video courses for the medical basic sciences. These courses are taught using a variety of teaching methods, including bullet point outlines, diagrams, radiology images, and chalk talks to explain the fundamental concepts. We then teach the application of those concepts to numerous clinical pearls that are frequently tested on medical school exams and the USMLE. Our video courses are available on our website, dviacademy.com, as monthly subscriptions starting at $9.99 per month. Each video course has a corresponding outline format textbook as well. You can find the link to our website in the description below. Also, be sure to use the discount code TDH20 to receive 20% off any of our video courses. All right, now back to the podcast. So I'm curious, going back to medical school, since we're speaking of med students, what, uh, what made you go into uh, radiology? And I think you talk a little bit about this in your book, um, but I'm curious to hear uh, from yourself what how you arrived at that decision? Well, I don't talk about this specific aspect in the book, but I think I was one of the late bloomers in terms of making a decision. Mm -hmm. In fact, to the point where I intentionally delayed graduation so that I would have more time oh. to do more electives. It was, it was serving two purposes because I finished the first three years on time. And then the deans, of course, said, okay, everybody, it's time to start applying. And I truly did not know what field I wanted to go into. And I talked to the deans and I said, look, I want more elective time. There's no, there's no rush here. And what I also wanted, and I'm not, I'm not advocating this for every student because I'm sure that every dean out there would love to wring my neck if they heard this. It's not advice. I'll just tell you what I did. I took a semester off and I went to go travel. Oh, wow. Because I was having a lot of uh, fantasies about being able to, before I got too old and too uh, set in my uh, ways uh, as someone older and more rigid, I wanted to do the, the fancy free youth hostel type overseas traveling. And I knew that once you start internship and residency, it's really hard to, to do that. So it worked out well for me to just take a semester off, go sow some wild oats and see some sites, and then come back and have six more months of fourth year starting before I had to apply. And it was during that period of time where I took a radiology elective just because most people do, because it's so integral to most fields of medicine, really. If you don't, other than psychiatry, which may have a little bit of brain imaging and dermatology, which does not need much internal imaging, besides those two specialties, just about everyone else orders a lot of imaging and relies on it. 
And it was that elective that opened my eyes and told me, you know what, this is actually really cool. And the thing I like about radiology, one of many things is that even though you can't do all of the surgeries that different specialists do, all of the procedures and know the ins and outs, you keep up a little bit with what a lot of different people do. So you, you have to learn a little bit about what the bariatric surgeons are doing or the urologists or the endocrinologists or whoever. And it allows you to just keep uh, abreast of what's going on in different fields. And it was around that time that I decided this would be my path. Awesome, very cool. No, that's interesting. I, I'm curious, where, where did you travel about? I went to Europe. Okay, okay. Yeah, nice. I went to several countries and had a great time. I'm glad I did it. That's awesome. Now, were you a non-traditional student or did you, did you go right out of uh, undergrad to medical school? I worked one year in a lab doing research okay. and then I started med school. So just that one year. Okay. okay. And then because I was a December graduate from med school, I did six months of mammo research before I started internship. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay. Because I had that, that semester to kill and do something with. Yeah. You know, a couple of things you said are interesting. I, I agree with you. I think so many med medical schools don't give you, and I don't think it's maybe not necessarily a fault of their own, but you just don't get enough time. I feel like a lot of times to figure out what you want to do. And it's, it's a big decision. So I guess I applaud you for, I think a lot of people talk about doing that, but many few do it. And obviously there's personal constraints with doing, taking extra time like you did. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a big decision and, and taking that time, you definitely got to think through it for sure. Um, and then I think on the it was one of the smartest things I ever did. It took some guts yeah. and a little <laughs> bit of convincing. And it was interesting because I remember some of my classmates, when I went ahead with this formally, I remember some friends of mine in, in class saying, oh, I wish I could do that. I said, well, the dean's office is right down the hall. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not actively advocating that many students do this. But for those who truly need more time before you get into the groove of internship and residency, and particularly if you need time to figure it out. I think there are better exposure opportunities for third years now. We have them mm -hmm. at our hospital campus where third years interested in a certain field can at least do a two-week exposure type thing. It's not much, but it at least allows you to, to glimpse it. Sure, sure. And as just recently completing intern year and then doing radiology residency, I can certainly echo that, that you don't have time <laughs> to do those sort of certain types of uh, activities uh, like traveling and, you know, exploring new, new opportunities and things like that. So, and I, I think what also completing intern year, what I think is interesting that you said also is that I think giving, having that perspective is certainly, I see why we have to do that, you know, as, as much as I got frustrated on the ward sometimes last year, <laughs> I, I can see where that, that experience definitely holds a lot of value. I, I really couldn't imagine starting residency right out of med school or at least radiology residency right out of med school without that like foundation in clinical practice. I agree a hundred percent. And I've listened to a few of your other guests on your other podcast episodes and others have echoed what I agree with, which is you really do learn an incredible amount in your intern year, even though some of it may not be the type of work that you carry forward using on a daily basis long-term, uh, like someone mentioned the sliding scales for insulin dosing and all of that, but you at least, you get a lot of, uh, fun of knowledge that comes in handy. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I'm curious, do you think 
you know, one is more valuable than the other, maybe they, it kind of suits a personal interest, maybe, you know, doing like a surgical year versus a uh, medicine year or like a transitional year, like I did, because I, I was able to do some, you know, some medicine and some surgery. Uh, do you, do you think it's kind of just maybe what you want out of it? Or do you think there's maybe certain advantages to one path? I, I imagine it that either is fine. And what I, the only thing I tell students who are going in is if you get elective time as an intern, don't do it in radiology. Mm-hmm. You're going to get all the radiology training you need. If you have elective time, do something that you may not get to learn about again. I think one that is perhaps undervalued and not thought about all the time is doing a little pathology exposure mm-hmm. because so much of radiology is anatomy and pathology. And it doesn't mean that we necessarily want to be doing autopsies all the time, but you do actually learn a lot of, of relevant information. So I think whether you choose surgical intern, internal medicine or transitional year, I think any of those routes are probably fine and there's a lot of overlap, um, but just try to figure out what suits your needs. Sure, sure. Um, so I want to get, a, uh, get into... Yeah, your, your book that you've written. And I want to first ask you, I guess, what inspired you to write this book? Uh... I can answer that. Um, <laughs> I didn't get to do a whole lot of pleasure reading as a resident. Mm-hmm. And literally the first book that I had picked up in a while was when I was on the plane going to take my radiology boards. Oh, okay. Which used to always be in Louisville, Kentucky every year. And I, I made up my mind that once I got on that plane, I wasn't studying anymore. I was just going to chill. And most important thing before a big test is get a good night's sleep. So I started reading a book that I knew would take my mind off of this board exam. And it was just a collection of Sherlock Holmes stories. And I really got into it and thought, you know, this is, this is kind of fun. And then I started reading more. Fellowship is, is plenty of work, but you're not preparing, at least in my day, you weren't preparing for a board exam anymore, you had already passed it. And so uh, I had a little more time to read. And then I just started getting into literature a little bit more. And that includes reading some other books by other doctors, including a couple of whom I knew or had met. And I was impressed with them. I thought every doctor's book that I had read, and it did not matter what the specialty, and there were some famous ones, neurologists, surgeons, the ER docs, internal medicine, infectious disease. I've read some really good ones, but I never saw anything by a radiologist. And I remember telling people that I thought I could come up with a book that would show people what I thought was this wonderful, almost magical side of our specialty because of the unique aspect of being able to look inside of someone's body and to learn about that person as an individual and what has been a disease process or something that's affected them already and therefore has an impact on what their potential future may be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I got the idea with that and just started tinkering around with some individual chapters, which are basically short stories, but they're nonfiction and just continued experimenting until I had enough come together where I knew I had hit critical mass and I was gonna continue until I saw it to completion. Gotcha. So this is something you've really been 
I guess, developing or, or composing over a number of years. This wasn't something you kind of wrote in a weekend. <laughs> Too many years. I'm going yeah. to be perfectly honest. I started this uh, a long time ago. And again, it was, it started as just an idea, but I knew it was not time sensitive material. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing that you just build on whenever you get the time and whenever you see an interesting case, a case that really makes an impression on you. And you think, wow, this is worth writing down. And this is worth sharing with other people, maintaining the patient's confidentiality or anonymity, but sharing the, the message. Sure, sure, of course. Yeah, and I guess the cases. It seems like you, you know, I've, I've, I haven't finished your book, but I've, but I've been, I've read through some of it uh, already. It seems like you like, you liked picking cases where um, the patients themselves were interesting people, and then, uh, you know, that such as your, your intern year um, that you talk about, and then, uh, and then your later years in radiology where, you know, you found something that maybe you weren't necessarily expecting to find, or the clinician that ordered it wasn't necessarily uh, expecting to find. And then how that kind of one gave you kind of a unique perspective into that person's, you know, world and who they were. And then also how that kind of impacted their, their life going forward. Is that kind of the criteria you used or was there something more to it than that? That was a lot of it. The way you described it was, uh, was good. In fact, if you ever want a part-time gig as an editor, I'll put you to work on a future (laughs) project. Um, That, that was part of it. Again, it, it was the kind of, the process of writing this book, it was, it was organic and it was gradual, mm-hmm. but whenever I just stuck to what was in front of me, which was real cases that were poignant and illustrative and really taught me something, and I thought it was an intriguing story worth sharing, then it all just eventually kind of fit together. Gotcha. Gotcha. One thing I'm thinking of is we're, as we're talking about cases, um, because I, I write some educational cases material, but I think for this book, you know, you mentioned patient confidentiality. How, when you write a book like this, do you have to get patients permission or is it a matter of just kind of changing the details enough that, um, you know, that's, that's kosher? I guess, how, how does that, I'm curious how, how that goes about. It's more the latter. So as long as you do not put identifiers, it, it's one thing if the, it's okay if the patient reads a story and says, well, that sounds like me, but as long as no one else can read it, uh, who's unknown to them and say, Hey, I think that's John Smith on the next block or whatever. Well, then I think the, 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 then legally that should work gotcha. in terms of protecting people's privacy. You're not saying who the person is. I don't usually use real names or, certainly not last names, but I, mm-hmm. I usually would change the first name if I gave them a name. And then you don't necessarily describe what city they live in, because some of these, again, are from different uh, parts of my career in different places. Um, so as long as you're, you're being general enough, I, I think that's, that's fine. Okay. That makes sense. Versus if you, you know, read a CT scan for a movie star and you said such and such was in Hollywood and starred in this movie, you know, that, you know, can't you, do that. You can't, can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> or, or in my town in DC, you can't mention that the person's in Congress or mm-hmm. uh, anything else because we see that that's our local celebrity and uh, no, you can't, can't do that. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so maybe I, I'm curious a little bit more about the kind of the writing process. Was it like, 
you would see this case and it would go off in your head, like when you're in the reading room, like, oh, I should, you know, keep track of this. Or was it more like kind of just reflecting over time or I guess maybe kind of go through that process how you want? Because I imagine you had more cases that you could have used than you actually used in the book. It was probably maybe that was a process even its own kind of narrowing it down. I oh, yeah. I'm I mean, think about it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, and it, it, as an attending radiologist, you read well over you're, you read in the low five figures every year. So mm-hmm. easily over 10,000 cases a year. I haven't, haven't even done the math. Uh, it's probably more <laughs> than that. And with each one of those are, are many images. If it's on, uh, you know, a, a multi-image study like a CT or an MR or whatever. So it's usually the, uh, the case that just gives you the wow factor mm-hmm. and it, it it either haunts you or it stays with you. And a lot of these in the book are the first time I ever saw X. So for example, one of them that you may not have gotten to yet is probably at least midway through. And that is the first time I ever saw unsuspected child abuse. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a pediatric radiologist. I was just at the outpatient office the first year in practice. It was cold and flu season, very busy. A lot of people coming in with coughs, getting chest x-rays, and that included a four-month-old who had a cough, and the mother brought her in, and the x-ray showed no pneumonia, but as I was pulling it down, because it was film back then, not digital, I suddenly saw, wait a minute, there's more to this story, and I saw healing rib fractures that were not something that a four-month-old would be able to have inflicted uh, by their own limited ability to injure themselves by not being able to move around very much yet. So mm-hmm. I knew there was more going on and that led to the drama of notifying the pediatrician, then getting the full skeletal survey, then having the parents react and question what's going on and having to explain what we are finding to people who are obviously concerned, but might even be possible perpetrators here. And that's not my role to figure out who was causing the abuse, but it's an, it's an inevitable uh, consideration. And so uh, I talk about those sorts of things in that story. And these are all very short. They're very easy to read. I, I geared this book toward non-medical general audiences, but that's the kind of story that sticks with you. And it might be, there are stories that are the first time I ever found certain cancers or saw horrible uh, spinal injuries or the first time I diagnosed infertility and had to explain to someone, it looks like you're not going to be able to get pregnant without intervention that you may not be able to afford. Uh, These types of stories, they just kind of stick with you. Complications, there's a whole section of those in there where you're doing biopsies or procedures and you're doing it by the book and yet inevitably things can go awry. And sometimes, despite doing everything technically correct, a bad outcome can happen. And then is there anything you can do to fix it? So these these kind of things stick with you. Yeah, I I can certainly echo that as, you know, I'm obviously very early in my training, but I, you know, I can remember, you know, cases that I read months ago that, you know, where I found a new cancer or something like that. I, it certainly, I still remember it and remember that it's, it's weird because it's, you're kind of excited as a trainee, like, oh, I actually, you know, found something or, or I was able to identify something. But then I think it's something interesting you talk about. And I, I actually think about this a lot where you think about the patient on the other end of that, you know, you, as radiologists, we may not necessarily get to see that, but 
I always think of that, especially if I get fatigued or it's later in the day and it's like, yeah, as you know, like an outpatient study where, you know, there's a lot of different nodules or things like that. I think, you know, this patient is probably very nervous about this exam is very, you know, they're kind of waiting on pins and needles to see what the radiologist said. The oncologist is waiting. Um, and it's, I think it's, you know, I hope I don't lose that. I hope to <laughs> keep that, that thought in mind as I progress and kind of thinking about the human side of, of imaging. Well, it's, it, it's a very important point that you bring up because these are all real people. And it's not just oncology patients. Remember, the way I look at it is every day you read CT of the abdomen, you're going to find kidney stones. Mm -hmm. And every evening that you read x-rays out of the ER, you're going to see a fracture. And every night you read ultrasound, you're going to see a miscarriage or two. It just happens. This is normal for us. And yet, you know that even though these conditions are typically self-limiting, these are not cancer diagnoses, most patients are going to remember when they had their kidney stone or their fracture or their miscarriage. These are important events in people's lives. And if you just remember that even if something is routine to us, it's of vital or at least critical importance to the individual and it is a real person being scanned. And it, I think it, it makes the job more rewarding just to keep that in mind. Certainly, certainly. Um, I guess back to kind of the writing aspect of things, you know, is, you know, you mentioned you wrote this over a number of years. Did you have a lot of, did, like growing up, were you someone who, you know, did a lot of creative writing or, you know, did you, you know, in your off clinical time, you know, write a lot of blogs or, or like news articles or you know, even just research papers or things like that? Is that something you've been involved with I, for a long time or no? I, I would say not really. Oh, I had a few publications as a student. And then when I worked in a lab for a year, I got my name on a few papers, but no, it was not, uh, it was not a, a definite passion of mine, creative writing. I did a little bit. I wrote a few short stories in my twenties and enjoyed that and thought perhaps I could put a collection together someday. And that is, I have actually worked a little more on that here and there, but that's still maybe half finished. I don't know. A good thing. I'm not relying on that to pay the rent, <laughs> but I don't know that I was, I mean, I was certainly not an English major. I was not someone who read extremely voraciously. It depended on the phase of childhood or young adulthood opportunities. Um, but once I got the idea and felt this passion for it, especially when cases would continue to present themselves and feel like it was part of a thread of this, this tapestry I wanted to weave. Forgive that sounds like a cliche, but just kind of trying to share with other people um, this incredible, the magic that we, that we can see in this beautiful field of ours called medical imaging. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. Um, I guess I'm curious, what, what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? And I imagine part of that maybe was, you know, maintaining your full-time job <laughs> and, and kind of splitting your time between these two. <laughs> well, getting it done, if somebody in your audience here is interested in writing, I could say a lot on that. Um, you have to be patient with yourself and go at the timetable for the work, first of all. So I put this aside for a number of years repeatedly during the, the period of time between start to finish. And the publication process is challenging. It's, it's time consuming part of it just because you have to submit and wait whether you are trying to get a literary agent and then trying to get a publisher 
And all of these things take time and they take persistence. And I think that's, that's the real challenge. Uh, there are different ways to publish now. Um, it's, it's, it's a, the field has evolved a lot since I started. And um, so you have to learn the ins and outs of all of that. And, and nowadays with social media, there's a lot of extra work that good authors or successful authors have to do in order to try to promote themselves. Because even if you have a big time publisher, there's only so much promotion and PR that you're going to get. And so you have to be active in different ways to try to get your work out there. So that, those are some of the most challenging parts, I think. Gotcha, gotcha. And I'm curious, as, as part of promotion for the book, I, I, like you recently gave, a, I think you were telling me, a, a lecture with the Smithsonian Institute. Um, I guess, what, what types of things have you, have you done to, to help that you have felt have been helpful to, to kind of get the book out there? Because writing the book's hard enough as it is, but then also, you know, you need to get people to know about it so that they can, they can read it. <laughs> Very much so. Well, I don't know that I'm the best person to ask because unfortunately my book launched three weeks before this minor little thing that affected us all called the shutdown with COVID-19. So uh, it came out, uh, it came out actually right around the time of the shutdown last year. Wow. And so I was lucky enough to have my initial launch party, which was a, a big event and had over a hundred people come to that. And then I had one independent bookstore presentation where I live, and then everything closed down and screeched to a grinding halt. So the live events that were planned um, have, have still been on hold. And so that's one thing that people can do is if you have material that you can lecture about, whether or not it has images, as in the case of, of mine, that's, I, I like to joke, my book at least has pictures. But, uh, you know, I, I had some live events scheduled that are on hold. And so then I did have a couple online um, events with my publisher, which is a, a small publisher, but then you look for other opportunities. I've been invited on a few other podcasts like your own, and then I did get referred to the Smithsonian. It was actually just an acquaintance of mine who came to the one bookstore event I got to give in March of last year, right before the shutdown, who liked the presentation and said, hey, I know somebody who has lectured with the Smithsonian. He's a historian. Your fields are different, but you should meet him and perhaps he can refer you. And so I waited at least six months because I thought, I don't know, why would they want me? And then finally I just thought, well, what have I got to lose? And so the people at the Smithsonian were wonderful. And I had to pitch and give a, a, a written presentation and be interviewed. And then they said, this is something we've never done before. And, an event on human imaging, but we think our audience would be very interested in this. And so I just gave that last month and it was well attended and it was very well received. And I was really happy about that. It was a smart audience. They asked good questions. So those are just the types of things you have to do. I do think, however, when live events are more um, numerous and prevalent, I think it'll be a little easier. Gotcha. Yeah. Congratulations on that lecture. That's, that's a huge honor. Uh, to present at the Smithsonian, and I'm happy to hear that it was it was well received. Um, is that you. is that something you you gave uh, like virtually through their through their website, or I, I guess I'm just curious how they had you had you do that that lecture? It was a virtual uh, event, yes. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and then I imagine the live events were they uh, I guess kind of traveling throughout the country that you had planned to you know at different like bookstores and other events like 
uh, like such? Is that, is that kind of what you had planned out to help promote the book? I was going to just start regionally and then take it uh, as opportunities arose. But yes, uh, that's, that's the way it works. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I guess, and you touched a little bit on this, what advice do you have for, I guess, physicians at any stage, whether they're a resident, you know, fellowship, attending what, you know, or even maybe a medical student that are, you know, they have this interest in writing or, or like yourself, maybe they see something that's kind of an unmet area in, in, in uh, you know, published books that they want to, you know, feel like is an important story to tell, I guess, what's your kind of your advice for at least starting out uh, in that realm? The first thing I would say is you don't have to start with an entire book. So you can test the waters by doing a guest column in a trade journal or a blog or not even your own blog, but as a guest um, uh, writer on someone else's blog, people who have, as you very well know, people who have podcasts and blogs are always looking for new material Mm -hmm. if it fits their goal, their mission. And so just find an audience where what you have to say may be what somebody's looking for and test it out. See how you like writing, see how you like getting your work out there. Be prepared and get some tough skin because not everybody will rave about what you say. You'll usually, usually if somebody's taking your work, it's going to be received well and um, reviewed well, but there's always going to be the, the outliers and the exceptions. And you can't take that personally, although look at what people have to say, and maybe that can be um, constructive criticism or an opportunity for improvement. And then if people feel that this really is a goal, a passion, first of all, you just got to write, just do it because you like it. Uh, the, I learned a long time ago that the word amateur does not mean half, uh, you know, talented or whatever else. Amateur just means it's based on the word AMA, the French word to love just means that you do something because you love it, not because you're getting paid for it. And so do something like writing just because you want to don't expect to make money from it because most people who write don't make money, but you can still get your work out there. You can still share it. Even if the amount of time that you put into it and all of the effort that you go to is not necessarily financially remunerative. I mean, you may end up making some money with sales and that's great. That's an ultimate goal for most people, but just knowing that your work is out there and that people are getting something out of it is rewarding in and of itself. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. You know, kind of along the many reasons people go into medicine, if you will, is just to, like you said, more focus on like the impact you can make or the importance of the story and what it means you know, what it can mean to people. Um, I think those, those are really uh, interesting and cool points for sure. Yeah. Can I add a couple other things to to your question? Yeah, um, of course. I, would, I don't want to forget a couple other important things. I would say it's important to network, okay. uh, including with other writers, because writers tend to be supportive of each other and to give each other ideas. And that can include getting people to review your work, um, but also to get ideas of places that you might submit. Gotcha. Um, and so that's important. And then these days, it's never a bad idea to start getting a base of supporters or followers with different social media and those sorts of outlets, because ultimately when you have something to launch, that base will already 
uh, be there to help spread the word. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Uh, I'm curious, were you someone that did, I know some physicians will do a lot of like speaking engagements or, um, you know, give like, you know, invited lectures and things like that. Was that something you had, you had done a lot of, I realize now you're, you're doing that with, with your book, but before that, was that something you had, you had done a lot of, or not really? A little bit, a little bit because I give lectures to the students and really enjoy that. And then I, I did give a few lectures with a continuing education company. Um, I actually attended this, um, this continuing education uh, course out of town on a vacation once, and I saw something and I thought, you know what, I think I could do better. And so again, you can't be shy and you can't be bashful. Um, I, I wrote the guy who ran the course and I said, with all due respect to what you had here, I think I could improve what you had on this if you're ever interested in a different radiology lecture. And eventually um, he gave me a shot and then he liked it and had me back another time. And so those are the kind of things that uh, never hurt to just practice uh, what you're trying to do. If you're trying to speak or you're trying to, um, you know, to get experience delivering these, this kind of information. Sure. Sure. Um, so uh, something I've had in the back of my mind, I want to ask you about is, so you've, You've written, like, and I think we've touched a little bit on this. So you've you've got you've written a book, which is on its own, its own accomplishment. Where do you go from there to get it published? You know, you obviously, you know, obviously, you could self-publish it, but say you you know don't have the time or don't really want to do that, or you want to at least try to see if a publisher would take it. Do you go out? I've heard you know. Do you go about finding a literary agent? Do you more just kind of cold email people? I guess what's, and I guess as a physician, is there any way you can kind of, I guess for lack of a better way, leverage your position as a physician to help with that at all or no? Yeah. So it, although the, the field of publishing has evolved a lot in the amount of time that I've tried um, dabbling, I can tell you what little I've learned. So the traditional route is to try to get a literary agent who will represent you. They then take your work to publishers and try to get you a publishing contract. Now, that is harder to do than it used to be in a lot of venues because the publishing industry, uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, but it doesn't, I don't think, make as much as it used to uh, per sale. There are a lot of people who are able to self-publish or publish with small publishers. And so there's a lot more material out there competing for the attention. Um, but so I did go that route and I went to a physician's writer's conference where they actually had agents come and give a brief, um, they gave like a little seminar and then you had the opportunity to pitch if you found agents who you thought might be a good match. And I, I actually there pitched to a couple who said they were interested and then you send a proposal. So if it's nonfiction, it's a proposal. If it's fiction, you send the entire finished work. If it's a novel, something like that. That's the typical way. I did get an agent, uh, a good one, a New York um, agent who only did nonfiction. And you do, when you ask, do you use the MD? The answer is yes. You have to have platform, which says that you're the, you're the voice that needs to present this information. So the more of an expert and the more of an accomplished voice, knowledgeable, uh, informed individual that you are, you're the one who needs to present this. Now, 
does that make me um, the, the best voice for radiology? No, I did the best I could. But anyway, I got the agent. And where that happened was um, by the time, you know, the revisions were made and this sort of stuff, the publishing uh, industry was changing. And she only dealt with big publishers in, in New York City. And I'm going to tell you, um, it took a long time to ultimately get rejected. Uh, there were a few who considered it and took their time and ultimately said no. And so the week that I lost my agent, when she said, okay, I, I, I believe in your work, but I think you're going to have to find a small publisher and that's not really her, her niche or her expertise. So she wished me well. That week was a little bit of a uh, feeling of dejection, but at the same time that week, I had an opportunity to go to a moth storytelling. Have you ever heard of the moth? It's a, a storytelling. It's if you look it up, themoth.org, it's okay. it's a wonderful organization of having people come tell live real stories that happen to them. And it happens really all over the world, but certainly in a lot of places in the country. And I had only been twice to the Moth uh, Story Slam events, but I went to one in Washington, DC just a couple of days after I lost my agent. And I actually got picked to go on stage to tell a story and I told one of my book chapters and I won the story slam. Oh, wow. So it was the shot in the arm that I needed to say, you know what, you've got something here. And just because you didn't find the publisher yet who believes in you, don't give up. And so I eventually found a small publisher. Great. That's, a, that's um, I guess, a true story of persistence right there. <laughs> well, it, it once you put enough work into something where it's hit that critical mass and you just realize I'm going to have to put even more into it, but I've put too much already to just throw it in the trash. You know, you, yeah. you know that this has to see some sort of completion or fruition of some sort. Sure. That's what happened. Sure. I guess what's the, um, what's the biggest thing you've learned, I guess, from writing from writing this book, like finally putting together, I guess I realize that's a broad question. I think maybe, maybe it's a two part one, maybe about, um, about imaging and kind of the impact it can have. And I guess maybe based on the reception you've seen from, you know, these different events you've done and things like that. I've really enjoyed hearing the feedback from people who read it, mm -hmm. especially people I don't know who have no reason to be kind to me as a friend, but they just simply read it and say, wow, they really got something out of it. I find that very rewarding. Um, and it can be an anonymous Amazon review of someone I don't know, but that makes it all worthwhile to know that people are getting the, the, the message that you're trying to convey. Mm -hmm. No, that's, I imagine that's a very gratifying feeling, especially after all, all that work. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, but think about it. If you have worked in radiology, whether you're a radiologist or a technologist, if you've ever had the opportunity to show a patient their image, and it, mm -hmm. it used to come up more uh, frequently when we would do fluoro studies, for example, and you're yeah. right there, mm -hmm. they've swallowed the barium, you've taken the pictures, and now you can say, hey, here is your ulcer, or here is this or that, or this large hernia, or here's where you reflux, this sort of thing. People are always fascinated to see what they're composed of because it, it addresses that, that question that we all carry with us in life is what, 
we're made of and what we're all about because we've got our physical existence and we've got our mental and our spiritual and you try to piece all that together and what's this all about and i think people are fascinated to look inside of themselves literally and metaphorically and to try to understand what affects what you need your physical anatomy to be the person you are and to give you the experiences you have in life. And yet we're more than just our bones and muscles and organs. So it's part of that, part of that whole exploration. And I think people are always fascinated to look at any human image, but especially their own and realize, wow, you know, I really do have a, a spine or uh, a brain or, or whatever. And um, it, I don't think there's ever, it never gets old to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny you bring that story up because I, I recently did a fluoroscopy rotation and I remember I had a, a patient who she knew she, she knew she had a, a hyalur hernia, but I was, you know, doing the, doing the imaging. And like you said, they're right there, they can see it. And she was looking at it and she's like, is that it right there? And then I said, Hey, I'll go over the images with you afterwards. And even though she knew it already, it was just so exciting to, for her to see that, you know, see that pathology and actually see that that's, you know, what it was going on inside of her. And, you know, you see the, you know, obviously see what real time with the barium and everything. And, um, that was a cool experience, you know, to kind of see what it means to somebody like, you know, we do all these studies all the time. And like you said, we can kind of get just caught up in the, you know, the grind of reading, but it's, it's cool to see how much, how much, how meaningful this is, you know, these are to the patients themselves, not just the, you know, the medical team taking care of them. Very much so. And meaningful to the patient and meaningful to the care provider who sent them to us to do the study. And that's what's nice about radiology as well. You're kind of serving two people or two, two channels here with the patients and with the doctors or PAs or nurse practitioners who, or whoever is sending you mm -hmm. the patients to get this consult of imaging in the first place. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I'm curious, uh, wrapping up here a little bit, what do you plan to write another book or, or are you kind of just uh, still, I guess, kind of working on the promotion side of this one right now? <laughs> I, I have some ideas. Let's okay. put it that way. Cool. Um, as soon as this one was sent to the printer and uh, the editing was done, I will tell you that I've had a whole lot of uh, joy the past year or so reading other people's books <laughs> and not having to work on anything of my own. Um, I still do a little dabbling. And I can see over time, uh, I think I have some ideas for, for probably a couple more. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I guess when you're not doing radiology, when you're not uh, writing books, what, what do you, else do you do with your free time? What are kind of your passions outside of, outside of your work? Well, because we work in the dark, I, I love <laughs> to get outside on my off time. So I like to do a lot of um, outdoor uh, physical activities like cycling uh, swimming. I lift a little bit, although you would never know that by the size of my biceps and, um, different, different activities, love to travel. And believe it or not, I actually, uh, I like to a couple times a month, uh, on a regular basis, I go country dancing. Oh, cool. Cool. Nice. No, it's, it's a real social event. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the dance floor, I said in the book, uh, where I believe imaging is the great equalizer mm -hmm. because you image someone and you don't know who's rich yeah. or poor, you don't know their skin color, you don't know their age a lot of times, you don't know what language they speak, all of the things where we may not even actively discriminate, but just the way we sort of categorize people in mm -hmm. different compartments in life, you don't know any of that when you're looking 
at imaging. And I think in another way, the dance floor is sort of an equalizer because you don't care if somebody is a CEO or the housekeeper in training. All you know is who's got rhythm and, and who has a good connection, uh, who moves well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that was, that reminds me, that was an interesting point. I, I remember reading your book and I, I think about that often that, that imaging is really the, in a lot of ways, the, a great equalizer because you, like you said, you have no idea what these people do for a living. You have uh, no idea. Even I've been recently rotating on trauma at a level one trauma center. You know, some of these are people that, you know, they were just in the car on the way to the airport, or they were people that were, you know, walking down the street and unfortunately got assaulted or, Sometimes there are people that were up to no good and got assaulted. <laughs> but again, you don't know that. You don't know, even in that scenario, those two, you know, very similar scenarios, you don't know what the, the cause ones are not. And in many ways, it doesn't even matter, uh, you know, as far as your, your ability as a, or your role as a radiologist. But I think that's really interesting. And then also the, the age component as well. Like you said, you don't even know necessarily always that it's, it's an older person or a younger person, uh, per se. So no, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy, depending on the type of study, it's pretty easy to tell the difference between pediatric and geriatric. Sure. But sure. Even that, if, you know, that may be easier on a bone image than on a liver ultrasound, for example. Sure. Sure. And for the vast majority of us who fall in that spectrum somewhere in between, no, there's not a lot of age discrimination on, on imaging. Uh, we all just look like people. Right. And I, I thought it was funny. I think you mentioned there that often you'll forget if it's, you know, a male or a female. And, you know, I've even done that myself. I've seen attendings do it. And, uh, you know, they're say, oh, where's his, you know, femur or something. And then, and they are, there's his femur and really, oh, they're really, oh, wait, it's a woman now, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. which is, I think, kind of funny too. Yeah. I think people who are not in the field may find that a little odd. And of course we pay attention when it's important. If you're looking for breast or uterine cancer, prostate or testicular cancer, you, you know what the patient's gender is, but if you're looking at a heart or a brain or uh, an extremity, again, we all just look like people. So kind of wrapping things up here, Colin, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about, you know, kind of reflecting on, you know, writing this book and then uh, even more so your now long career in radiology, I guess, how does, when you reflect back on what comes to you, you know, after kind of exploring this aspect of radiology and even just your own, you know, just your career in medicine in general, maybe any kind of parting advice you would have for the, for the listeners out there? That's a good question. I've very much enjoyed the career that I've had, which I'm probably roughly two thirds through. And the, the main thing that I would say is it's amazing how it has evolved over time. And so what I would say, if any of your listeners want a, a little bit of unsolicited or perhaps solicited advice is one, uh, just be prepared and expect a little, um, a little change over time. And with that, I think it's important to maintain your skills, maintain a breadth of skills. I know that a lot of practices, not only academic, but even private practice are getting quite subspecialized and mine is certainly a subspecialized practice, but I think there is a little bit of a risk both to the practice and to the individual radiologist if that goes too far because I still think we've had the training that we've had and one should maintain their skills to some degree. And I can give you a few examples. I've seen people who, for example, were very good at nuclear medicine, but did not maintain CT skills. So the nuclear medicine skills were fine until PET became more prevalent. And then all of a sudden they were running into some issues. People who um, do only breast imaging, I know that's 
becoming the, the norm now, but to not be able to read a chest X-ray or a pelvic ultrasound because you only do one type of thing, I think is a little bit extreme because modalities change and people change jobs. You may take a different job someday where you're expected to do things that you haven't done in a while, or your own practice may have to shift work assignments around in order to cover and balance. And you may need to start doing something you haven't done for a while. So don't give up too much, I think is, is one bit of advice I would leave people with. And just remember that modalities change too, right? I mean, in, it was in the mid to late 1990s when I was a resident, when CT angiogram became common for pulmonary embolism detection. And of course now it's the, the gold standard and it's the norm but it was new back then. And the gold standard pulmonary angiography is basically obsolete. And that's just one example. So the imaging evolves. And so we need to keep our skills up. It's not always easy, but um, you know, it's something we have to do. The other things I would advise people are to get involved and make yourself useful in other ways besides reading images. And there's so many ways that you can do that, whether it's academic or private practice, somebody needs to pitch in in terms of things like uh, protocols or get involved with billing and coding or marketing and physician outreach. There are all kinds of ways that you can get involved, scheduling, these sorts of things. Some of them are more uh, appreciated uh, or thanked than others, but they're all important. So find whatever is of interest to you and, and do that so that you're contributing in another way. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, even in my own residency, I see where there's a lot more to the practice of medicine than just the actual medicine. There's, you know, as you said, there's, you know, marketing the practice or marketing what you're doing and then, um, you know, quality improvement things, those types of things are all, uh, definitely help make things better and make better patient care. And then also, like you said, are appreciated, hopefully in most cases. They are. I mean, people may not always say thank you, but they're appreciated because they're necessary components of, of how a department needs to run. Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, it seems like there's a lot of people who, you know, you learn a lot of these procedural skills and things like that. And, and, how, and you, be, you come out of residency, maybe the most versatile you, you'll ever be. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, trying to maintain that is, you know, to, to stay versatile, you know, is always the best, the best position to be in. I've heard of, you know, like interventionalists that, you know, they did IR for 10 years and then they joined another practice and that practice wanted them to read diagnostic and they hadn't really read a scan that wasn't an interventional case in, you know, 10 years. And so I kind of put them in a tough spot. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I've definitely heard other examples out there to echo exactly what you're saying for sure. Yeah. I mean, you have to be realistic. It's not easy to maintain high-end neuroimaging and high-end breast imaging and vascular interventional work. I mean, you do have to uh, focus on what you do most commonly and what you're best at. But again, I think there's a danger in getting hyper-specialized where your work may not always allow that to happen because again, people can take different jobs and the technology can change within a practice regardless. Sure, sure. Um, okay. Uh, the other thing I, I want to do before we wrap up here is, is let people know where they can buy your book. Um, and I have it right here again, looking within, um, where is the, where are some places they can, they can go find that? 
Well, bless you. I really appreciate the, uh, the pitch you're giving there. Uh, it's available wherever books are sold. So the standard digital formats, including uh, Kindle and uh, Apple Books, uh, Barnes and Noble Nook, and then of course, uh, physical copies can be at any bookstore, uh, as well as the uh, online, Amazon, et cetera. And um, I've got a website, uh, people want uh, signed copies. So that's uh, my name, uh, www.cullenrock.com. And um, so really wherever books can be sold, it can be ordered. Great, great. And I think you said it, it had been uh, placed, I think in the, you said in the imaging category on Amazon, it was a bestseller. For, uh, for, it's been a bestseller there for a number of times that you were telling me that before we started recording. It has. Um, it's, it's, books are a competitive thing. And so the, the rankings always change, but I've been very lucky because of getting some good reviews. And so good reviews allowed Amazon to promote it a couple times and the digital Kindle version, certainly um, I'm grateful to say was a, in, in their niche that there are hundreds, there are several hundred uh, niche categories within Amazon books uh, from everything from you name it, they've got all kinds of categories. So to say that a bestseller in biography or mystery is gonna have a few more sales than human imaging or uh, breast cancer, which was the other category um, that it was at one point a considered a bestseller. And so I'm just grateful for, for what I've been able to do with it. Right. No, and if somebody wants to read it. Regardless of what category, I think that's, that's quite an accomplishment. So, uh, that, that's great. Um, and then the other thing is where, where can people, uh, follow you on? Are there any social media platforms? You've mentioned your website where people can follow you on there and any, any other platforms where you're active on? Um, sure. I, I'm not the most active, but yes, I'm, I'm, I'm on there. I'm on Twitter at Cullen Ruff. I am on uh, LinkedIn and the typical professional uh, sites there. Okay, great, great. Well, we will put your, your website, we'll put the, the Amazon links and, and your other links in the, in the show notes below. Um, and again, it was, it was a lot of fun talking with you. I certainly learned a lot about uh, my career or my uh, field of radiology and what to look forward to in my career ahead. And uh, I hope the listeners did too. And thanks, thanks for sharing your, your wisdoms, both on uh, radiology and then also with uh, you know, composing and, and publishing a book. Well, it was my pleasure to be on here. I just wish everyone, whether they're students, residents, or early in practice, I wish them the best in their careers. I've had a great one so far, and I'm very happy to still be doing it and going strong. I think we've got a great field, and we can do a lot of good for a lot of people. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree. Um, well, thank you again, Colin. We appreciate it. Best of luck to you, and thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month -month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as ebooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. Da Vinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions 
and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.